Take your Bibles and turn to the book of um, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, chapter 2 of Ephesians, starting at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with all the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, Father, we now come, and we are handling eternal things, and we are handling eternal things in the presence of eternal people. And I pray that as we go through this, that these um, words that we look at will have an effect on us and an impact on us that will make a difference not only for now, but also for eternity. So, Father, once again, as we often ask, would you make this book live? Would you make it live in my heart? And would you make it live in the lives of these people here? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to be saved? If I were to ask you that question and uh, just get a response from you, um, uh, how you understand salvation and what it means for you to be saved, I suspect that the vast majority would respond um, in, in, in terms of individualistic terms. In other words, it means that now I am, I am saved, that my sins are forgiven, that I have the hope of heaven, that, and, and you would word, use words like I and me involved in salvation. And I would say that that's a very good thing, and that's, a, that's, that's certainly an important aspect of salvation, but it's not the full story. It's not the complete story that we get in Scripture. And in light of the increasingly individualistic world that we live in, The things that we're going to look at this morning, I think, are so um, transformative in our life and in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to come into this salvation by grace um, through faith. And you might, uh, for example, um, because what I want to emphasize is the corporate nature of salvation is the big plan that God has for salvation. Some of you are familiar with the term um, redemption. Redemption is a very, very um, common word in the New Testament, and it means to be delivered from slavery. It means to be brought out of slavery into freedom. And so the Bible talks about being um, delivered from our sins and set free from them. It talks about being um, uh, redeemed from the curse that is upon us because we have sinned and set free from that. Uh, And so redemption is this term that talks about how God has set us free. But did you know that the, the Bible um, has a much wider understanding of the term redemption? And in Romans chapter 8, you, you get a glimpse of this sort of picture about the, the breadth of redemption. When you, when you look at verse 20, for example, of Romans chapter 8, it says there, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself, will be set free from its bondage to decay. Do you get that? that? That creation right now, this world in which we live, is longing to be set free from the bondage that it's in. Bondage to decay, the cycle of life that, that is life and death, life and death. That even creation experiences those kinds of pains that come from death. And he goes on there and he says, to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, 
But we ourselves, who are the fierce fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that redemption is so much bigger than just our freedom. That when Christ died on the cross, his death not only released us from our bondage to sin, but it released all of creation from its bondage to sin and decay, and it groans longing for freedom just as we do in our life. So salvation is so much more than simply an individual thing that happens to you or I. And if there's any key thought that that's, that I would like to resonate in our heads as, heads as we uh, work through this this morning is that salvation does not start and end with me. Salvation does not start and end with me. There is clearly, and we have seen it in, in Ephesians chapter 1, how salvation is um, does have a personal application, that God has loved us, that he has adopted us, that he has redeemed us, that he has filled us with his Holy Spirit, and that, there is a, a, that it is important that anyone who wants to be saved must call upon the name of the Lord. So there is very clearly a personal response that is necessary in order for one to be in a relationship with God. But what Paul is getting at here is the plan of God in salvation is so much bigger than just you or me. It's so much bigger than just a single um, individual. And we find that concept even in the Old Testament. What does God talks often about the people of Israel, about the nation of Israel, about how God's plan is wrapped up in the people. And that same concept and that same plan is brought over into the New Testament. And I think in, until we start understanding the, the richness and the breadth of God's plan, our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of God will fall short of what God has for us. As he, as he talks here, we'll be reminded that we are not islands. That there's no such thing as a Christian who becomes saved and then that's all they need. They can live by themselves. We are actually one land mass together. There is a connectedness between us that is so critical for understanding the bigger plan of God for us in salvation. And notice how he starts out in verse 19. You are no longer aliens and strangers. That has the implication that we, we feel separated. We feel disconnected. We feel all on our own. He says, but now you are a people, a family, a temple. There's three pictures that Paul presents in these verses, which I think illustrate to us not only the the corporate nature of our salvation, but the huge plan of God that he has always had before the foundation of the world for us as a people. The first thing that we see there, the first picture is a very clear picture where he says there that you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with all the saints. Because Because of salvation, I now have a new community. I belong to a people of God. I am a fellow citizen with all the saints. In other words, there is a communal reality to what it means to be a Christian. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says there that our citizenship is in heaven. We now have a new identity. We now have a new homeland. We now have a new community that we identify with. And as Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We have a common birth certificate. In Psalm 
chapter 87, and we, we won't look there, but Psalm 87, there's about four verses there that talk about how God has brought people from every nation, from the Babylonians, from Egypt, from, from different places, and he has, he has brought them into the community of faith. And he says now about those individuals, this one was born here. In other words, this one is now a citizen of Jerusalem. There is something that God does who takes people that are aliens and strangers, and he brings them in to a new community. I think that this is something that is, is really quite important for us to grasp. Some of you may have um, traveled. I don't travel a lot, but some of you may have uh, traveled a lot. And you go to another country where you're not a citizen, and it can be a very sort of strange thing for you. It's a great thing to travel, but you don't know the language. Um, you don't know the, the little idiosyncrasies of the culture. Um, you certainly couldn't run for government in any country where you're not a citizen. You don't really, you're not familiar with the, the, the legal system, and so you're sort of a little bit leery of, of if you have a run-in with the law. Uh, you're certainly um, not aware of the, the medical systems, and so there's a whole bunch of things that are a little bit uncomfortable and uh, a little bit um, awkward for you when you're not a citizen. But when all of a sudden you become a Christian, you now have a, a whole new birthplace, a whole new citizenship, a whole new way of living, a whole new way of connecting, a whole new way of identifying with one another. And Paul talks about this in various places, but we are fellow citizens. We share a similar bond. We share similar laws. We, share, we serve a similar king. Um, we, are, we have the same rights of citizenship. And I was thinking of this. What does it look like for us to be citizens of heaven? Well, we'll look at that in Ephesians 4 to 6, but he says it, it will change the way that we talk. It will change the way that we, that, we, that we deal with one another in relationships. It will impact our marriage. It will impact our children. It will impact our employee-employer relationships. Being a citizen of heaven changes the whole dynamic of how we re- relate and interrelate as the people of God. And so all of a sudden now, we are a group of people that are fighting for the same goals, fighting for the same ideals. We embrace the same constitution, which is the word of God. And so when we're saved, we're saved not just to be a a person before God. We're saved to be part of a new community, fellow citizens with one another. I currently have four citizenships, and only one of them do I have by birth. I am a U.S. citizen by virtue of the fact um, of my mother, and I've never lived in the United States. I am a British citizen by virtue of the fact of my father, and I have never lived a day in Britain. In fact, I've never been to Britain. I am a Canadian citizen by virtue of the registration of a birth abroad. I was not born in Canada. I was born somewhere around the world. So I have all these three citizenships, none of which I get through birth. But the most important citizenship that I have and the citizenship that I do have by birth is my citizenship in heaven. That I now have been born again by the Spirit of God who has made me a new creature in Christ Jesus. And he now says, this one is a citizen of heaven. That is important, loved ones, that we understand that when you come to faith in Christ, you become part of a new community. 
And it changes the way that we live. I was thinking of this between the two services. Um, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 talks about some of this stuff, how it changes the way that we live. Isaiah was called out of one, or, or Abraham was called out of one land and was heading to another one. And it says there about him um, that, that he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then in verse 13 of chapter 11, he says, all of these people he talks about have faith. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. Do you see the implications already? If you are a citizen of heaven, you become a stranger and an exile on earth. The whole way that you interact with earth, the whole way that you interact with this world which is passing away, the things that you hold on tightly tightly to, the things that you pursue, those things should be more and more released, and your focus should be on heaven, which is your home. And he goes on there, For such people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And then notice this. This is how God views us who are citizens of heaven. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So, loved ones, when you think about salvation, one of the images that ought to come into your minds is, it's not just about me. I am now part of a new community, that I live differently, I talk differently, my focus in a different place. And that is where our hope is. It's, it should profoundly impact the way that we live. Um, the second thing that I, that I see about salvation is that because of salvation, I have a new family. Notice what he says there in Ephesians. He says, not only are you fellow citizens with the saints, but you now become members of the household of God. In verse 19, the household of God. This is the second picture that we get of, of salvation. And as I was thinking of this in my study, and as some of you know, songs just pop into my head and they come out of nowhere. And the song that popped in my head uh, as I was thinking about this was um, by the Sledge, Sister Sledge. Any of you know it? We are family. Yeah, see, we could sing that together, eh? And, and, and we are family, uh, and it kind of goes on. I got all my sisters in me. We are family. Get up, everybody, and sing. I'd love for us all to get up and sing a chorus of that, but we're, pre- we're too Baptist to do that. But... But, but then there's another, uh, there's another line that says in that song, all the other people around us say, can they be so close? How is it that people of the world get family, but sometimes as Christians we, we, we miss that? And that should be one of our theme songs as we walk into church every Sunday, as we get together with our growth groups. We are family. You know, it's, that's, this is what God has done for us. And I was thinking about that. What premium do you place on your biological family? Some of us are very strong at making sure we get the family together. Thanksgiving's coming up. We've got to have a family dinner. You know, if there's, dis- if there's trouble in the family, you know, you talk about it. You try and work through it. You try and reconcile. You, you try and get the family back together because family is important. Loved ones, do we bring that same emphasis into the church? In fact, to a greater degree. And I say this with all carefulness, but we will, we will spend a lot longer together with the family of God than we will with our biological family. 
So are we working to bring our kids into the family of God? Are we working to cultivate a, a, a community and atmosphere in the family of God? When we face troubles and division and difficulties, do we work just as hard to, to resolve them amongst the people of God as we do amongst our biological family? Paul is saying that we now become part of this amazing family of God. And that's great news for somebody who's never had a family. It's great news for somebody who's never known what it means to be part of a group of brothers and sisters who love you and care about you. This is what happens when you become a Christian. You become part of this amazing family of God. See, this is one of the things that we have to get. When we're saved, we are not saved and then that's it. Loved ones, when you become a Christian, you now become part of a great big family called the household of God. And salvation opens the door to family intimacy like never before. Do you know that um, the word brethren is one of the most common words? It is the commonest word in the New Testament to describe Christian. Brethren means brothers and sisters. That is what we are, loved ones. Look around you, the people behind you, the people in front of you, the people beside you. If they are uh, in Christ, they are your brothers and sisters. They are your family. This is part of God's big plan of salvation, is to bring us into one family. In fact, there's a, there's a whole book of the Bible that's written about this. Um, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul r- writes there, he says to them, um, I hope to come to you soon. Uh, and so I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. Many of us have rules and regulations and guidelines and principles by which we establish our home so that there's order and not chaos, so that we learn to respect one another rather than take advantage of one another. Well, it's the same thing in the church. God has given us guidelines and he's established the way that we might function best and how to learn how to get along as the household of God. So this is a, a critical truth. And he goes on and he says in there that... that, um, that that this, this family is rooted in the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and it's all centered in Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone. Just let me say this really quickly, because I want to get to the, the third point. So we're, we'll miss over a lot, and this will come on my head, not out of my notes. So we'll hope we'll get it right. But he talks about the foundation that's laid. Notice there he says that you are members of the household of God that's been established on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And I oh, just stop for a minute. I saw Wilma there. This is, this is my random mind. Wilma just completed the tour de rock. And I think that's just astounding. I'm sorry. I just. And she's here and she's sitting. Um, congratulations, Wilma. That's pretty cool. Um, sorry if I embarrassed you. And sorry if I've really blown a bunch of you away by thinking, what does he think in his head? Well, now you know. Uh, anyhow, back to the, the foundation. He says it's, it's, a, it's a family that's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, there is a ton of debate about what that means. Let me um, kind of let you know um, in a nutshell what I think it means. I think it simply means that the family is built on an inspired foundation of truth. Whatever you, um, because the prophets and the, and the apostles were those that God used to give us the word of God to give us the inspire word of God. And so what is our family of God built on? It's built on our understanding of truth. It's built on setting the structures up in our home that is based in the truth. 
And so the, the whole foundation of our family is truth. And that's why we preach it week, at, week after week, so that we will understand, in part, how we live together. And so it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But he also says, and its cornerstone is Jesus Christ. At the very, very heart of it all is the cornerstone Jesus Christ. Now, we don't use cornerstones a lot in construction today. I think they do use it in, in still when they do masonry work and those sorts of things. But a cornerstone, uh, usually in, in those days and up to not long ago, was the most important stone in the building. Because as you laid the cornerstone, you determined the direction of everything else, um, uh, the, how the walls would go, um, the, the direction of the building, the, the shape of the building. The cornerstone was absolutely critical. You get the cornerstone wrong, and you get it all wrong. And so our foundation is the inspired word of God. It's truth. And at the very heart of that foundation is Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about that um, because I know we wrestle sometimes. People say, well, why is Christianity so exclusive? Like, why, do you, why can't there be a lot of different ways to, to God and to heaven? Like, why can't everybody get there their own way? I don't know why. But I do know that the Bible says that the only way that one can get there is through Christ. God has determined that's the way. Whatever else we might want to think, the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. And the only way that a church can function as a community and as a family is, 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 is if Jesus Christ is front and center. If you take Christ out of Christianity, what do you have? Eanity. And if you add two little words, N and an S, what do you have? Insanity. I believe that's what happens when you take Christ out of the center of the church, out of the center of Christianity. It is just nutso stuff. It makes no sense. There's nothing that holds it together. There's nothing that gives it direction. And so what, what, what Paul is saying here is that in this new family, it is built on truth, and it is centered on Jesus Christ. If you mess with the foundation, you mess with the family of God. You mess with the heart of Christianity. So that's the second picture that he gives us, is this picture of the fact that when we become a Christian, we become part of this amazing family. And it takes work for us to get along together. But that's what families do. They work at it. And the harder they work at it, the better the family they have. The third picture that we have here is uh, the last one in verse 21, where he says there, in, in whom the whole structure is being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Because of salvation, not only am I part of a new community, not only am I part of a new family, but I am also part of a new temple. We are part of the temple of God. The listeners who first heard this would have, this would have had all kinds of immediate um, uh, images for them. Many of them probably would have gone to Jerusalem or at least heard of this beautiful, amazing temple in Jerusalem. A temple that had been basically standing for a thousand years. It had been built by Solomon. It was just staggering in its beauty. It had been sort of destroyed and then rebuilt by Zerubbabel. How do you like to be called Zerubbabel? Maybe that could be the fourth child, um, Zerubbabel, because um, you've got Bible names. Um, <laughs> sorry, my mind is really wild tonight. Today, um, Where was I? 
Oh, yes, Zerubbabel. Uh, and then you have Herod uh, who built it. And this was an extraordinary building. It, it, in its beauty, um, it was amazing. But at the very, very heart of the temple was where um, God dwelt. And clearly, we know that God didn't exclusively dwell there because God cannot dwell in a temple built by human hands. The universe can't contain him. But it was where the presence of God was realized. And they knew that. Well, in, in Ephesus, um, most of these people, after this little meeting, wherever they would, would walk out, and one of the immediate things they would see was the, the temple to Artemis. One of the, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. A staggering temple in its beauty. You can go and read some of the descriptions of it, and it was just stunning. Um, and at the very center of that temple was the place where, where the, 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 the idol of the goddess was put. And so they would understood clearly that that temple was the dwelling place of their god. Now we both know that the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple in Ephesus has been destroyed. And so the presence of God or their goddess is no longer in that place. But what Paul is saying here is that we, loved ones, are spiritual stones being built into a single temple. That we are, we are being built together. We are growing up into a single temple. If that doesn't speak community, I don't know what does. I was reading in my... Uh, I better wait. I'll, I'll move on. Um, but we are part of this unique community. And if there's one point that I want to get across about what this community means, it means purity. It means purity. Uh, I was, uh, again, amazed reading Joshua chapter 7. And uh, the, Joshua chapter 7 begins, and, and all Israel sinned because Achan took some stuff that he wasn't supposed to take in the conquest of um, Jericho and hid it under his tent. Loved ones, there is a communal impact from your sin and my sin. There is no such thing as sin that does not affect anybody else. No such thing as that. When you sin, you impact the people around you. You, you will impact, the, even, if you, even if it's not visible, it will be emotional impact. It will be a spiritual impact. When you sin, if you're married, that will affect the relationship with your spouse. If you sin as a parent, that will affect how you deal with your children. When you sin as a member of the body of Christ, it impacts our worship together in the dwelling place of God. This is such an important thing that we understand this concept, that, that we're not saved in isolation we are saved to be part of a new community. We're saved to be part of a new family. We're saved to be part of, part of a temple. And this temple is the place where the very presence of God dwells. And so when we gather together, Sunday after Sunday, in this corporate way, it matters how you have lived during the week. It matters what, what you have done during the week. And if you have been one that has prayed and has, has lived for God well and has served God well, that becomes part of our corporate worship and is pleasing to God. But if you have lived a life of sin and rebellion and, and, and disobedience towards God and, and, and you come together, that impacts the way that we worship together as a people of God. Because we are connected in this amazing plan of God for us in salvation.
So as we think about this and move into communion, if there's three things that, that come out, and, uh, and I was thinking about these, these are really three fundamental truths of discipleship that paint the broad boundaries of what it means to be saved. And, and we, could, we could spend weeks on each one of these and just opening them up. But first of all, to, to be a Christian and to be saved means that we now belong. We are part of a new community. We have citizenship in heaven. And that immediately impacts the way that we live in the world and the way that we live amongst one another. The second thing that Paul teaches us about this amazing plan of God and salvation is it teaches us now how we relate. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That should determine how we treat one another. And the third thing that he says is it should have a profound impact on how we live. Because we are now being built up. We are growing together to become the actual dwelling place for God. And so it impacts how we live. Those are the parameters of discipleship, loved ones. That's what it means to be saved. New community, new family, and temple of God.